Hello and welcome to the Master of Demon Gorge podcast. Today we're talking about Xie An. Long-time listeners to this podcast and folks interested in Chinese history generally probably already know that China went through long periods of division over the centuries. Often the division was between north and south. And often, eventually, one side swallowed the other. Typically, the north swallowed the south. In the annals of these cataclysmic changes in the conflicts between divided portions of China, great statesmen and military leaders often ended up becoming tragic figures. Some of them ultimately couldn't arrest the vast forces at work, ultimately couldn't avoid the fate that history had in store for their country. In this column, we would name individuals like Wen Tianxiang, who made a last-ditch effort to save the Song Dynasty from the Mongols, or Shi Kefa, who made a last-ditch effort to save the Ming Dynasty from the Manchus. Some others fell to the treachery of corrupt internal politics. In this column, we can put Yue Fei from the Southern Song Dynasty and Yuan Chonghuan from the Ming. All of these folks we have featured on this podcast before already. Today, I want to talk about a happier figure. A man who was placed in a situation not unlike what faced men like Yue Fei and Wen Tianxiang but who managed to come out ahead and to get to a happy ending. His success necessarily shaped the course of Chinese history to come. And that success in turn led him into the pages of my elementary school history textbook. Today we're talking about Xi'an. But again, as often happens, we must set the scene. On this podcast, we've previously talked about the Three Kingdoms period that followed the Han Dynasty. That period ended with the triumph of the Jing Dynasty in 280 AD. But the Jing Dynasty ran into trouble pretty quickly. On this podcast, we've talked about Emperor Huidi of Jing, who became synonymous with imperial incompetence. He led the Jing into the Rebellion of the Eight Princes from 291 to 306, which drastically damaged the power of the dynasty. With the Jing weakened, nomadic peoples from Inner Asia poured into China, beginning a long period of invasion and migration by so-called barbarians that paralleled the invasion of the Roman Empire by Germanic peoples and other tribes happening around the same time. In this chaos, with the Jing unable to beat back the tide of invaders, Emperor Huaidi of the Jing was killed in 313 AD, then his successor Emperor Mingdi of the Jing was killed in 316. The Jing looked like it was pretty much finished. But not quite. In the face of northern invasion, the Jing nobility migrated en masse southward, 
and among them were some imperial cousins. In 317, when news reached southern China that Emperor Mingdi had been killed, one of these cousins, Sima Rui, supported by the nobility, proclaimed himself Emperor Yuandi of Jing, establishing the so-called Eastern Jing Dynasty. We call it Eastern Jing, but geographically the division was between north and south. The Jing was in the south. And the north came to be divided between several regimes: the Qianqing or former Qing, Qianyan or former Yan, Qianliang or former Liang, and the Dai. The division was also why this period in Chinese history came to be called the North and South Dynasties, or the Wei Jing North and South Dynasties. Xi'an was born. Into the barely stabilized world of the Eastern Jing, in 320 A.D., and he was born into one of its most distinguished families. The Xie clan traced back to the Zhou Dynasty, to the ninth or eighth century B.C., when King Xuan of Zhou created their ancestor as a lord. By the time of the Eastern Jing. The Xie clan habitually had some of their members in high positions in government. Interestingly, however, Xi'an had no intention of being one of those members of his family who served at court, and he spent his twenties and thirties living in seclusion, away from court, away from politics, writing poetry and reading philosophy. He was happy. To let other family members play politics and fight the wars, including his brothers Xie Yi and Xie Wan. In 358, however, Xie Yi died, and then in 359, Xie Wan, a general, participated in a northern campaign that failed. For this failure, Xie Wan lost his position in 360. Suddenly, the famous Xie clan had no one left in the government of Eastern Jing, and Xie An, at forty years of age, had to take up the family mantle and enter politics for the first time. He went to work for Huan Wen, at this time the most powerful man in the court of Eastern Jing. A man powerful enough to potentially usurp the emperor—something he definitely thought about. Xi'an and Huan Wen would later end up disagreeing profoundly about politics, but they always respected each other. Then Xi'an went to work for Chancellor Sima Yu. Note that surname Sima, which was the Jing Dynasty's imperial surname. Indeed. Sima Yu was actually the youngest son of the Eastern Qing's founding emperor Sima Rui, Emperor Yuandi, and at this time he served his cousin as the chancellor, and was one of the other most powerful men at court. Sima Yu initially made Xi'an a provincial governor, a position at which he excelled, before bringing him back into the central government. In 371, Xi'an's Former boss Huan Wen 
decided to flex his political muscles by pushing out the reigning emperor and putting Chancellor Sima Yu on the throne as Emperor Jianwen. Emperor Jianwen didn't reign for very long. Less than two years later, he fell ill and died. As he lay dying, he made his ten-year-old son Sima Yao the crown prince. But he also knew that Huan Wen was nearly powerful enough to seize the throne for himself anyway, and was hoping that the dying emperor would give in to the reality of power politics and endorse such a usurpation. He very nearly gave in. After all, his son was only ten years old. What hope did the boy have of fighting off the wily old minister Huan Wen? In his last will and testament, Sima Yu, Emperor Jianwen, wrote to Huan Wen, "If my young son proves worthy of your guidance, then guide him. If not, the empire is yours for the taking." So Emperor Jianwen practically invited Huan Wen to usurp the throne. At this critical juncture, Xi'an intervened, leading his own clan. He allied with two other powerful families, both surnamed Wang, to prevent Huan Wen from taking over. Xi'an's colleague Wang Tanzhi actually tore up the emperor's will in his presence. Emperor Jianwen agreed to write a new will and dictated it to Wang Tanzhi, who wrote it down. The new will expressed no wish for Huan Wen. To take over. Upon learning what Xi'an and Wang Tanzhi had done, an outraged Huan Wen marched on the capital with his army, intending to massacre both of their families. Wang Tanzhi was terribly nervous, and sweated through his clothes. Xi'an, on the other hand, displayed the calm, the sangfroid, for which he became famous. He went to meet Huan Wen, and talked him down from taking any drastic actions. And then the following year, 373, Huan Wen died, ending his ambitions for the throne. Even so, members of Huan Wen's family still held powerful positions in government. Xi'an carefully maneuvered them into political compromises. Until finally, the great houses of the Jing achieved a kind of equilibrium. By the time the young Emperor Xiaowu took power in his own right in 376. Also, by this time, the Xie clan was the only great family in the Jing, with its hands on the levers of the central government. While all this was going on in the south, in northern China. The former Qing conquered the former Yan in 370, then the former Liang and the Dai in 376. Under its great king Fu Jian, the former Qing had unified northern China. All that stood against it now was the eastern Qing, the power in the south. The writing was on the wall that an attempt by the north to conquer the south was inevitable. Xi'an set about preparing the Jing for the coming war. 
In 378, Fu Jian launched the first attempt at the Jing, attacking the city of Xiangyang in today's province of Hubei with 170,000 troops. The local general, a man named Zhu Xu, was able to defend Xiangyang for nearly a year. But ultimately, in 379, the city fell and Zhu Xu surrendered. Fu Jian then pressed farther into Jing territory, fighting what's called the Battle of Huainan. Xi'an oversaw matters in the capital at this time, but he sent his nephew, Xie Xuan, with 50,000 of the Jing's most elite troops northward to meet Fu Jian's forces. Xie Xuan wound up fighting four battles and winning all four of them, forcing the enemy to retreat. In 383, Fu Jian renewed his attempt to conquer the south, launching the campaign that led to one of the most famous battles in Chinese history, the Battle of Fei Shui. Many of his own men, his own advisors, opposed the move. They warned him that the north had only newly reunified. Soldiers were sick of fighting, and the erstwhile leaders of the newly defeated regimes might rise again to oppose Fu Jian. But Fu Jian didn't listen. Although actually, in a way, it was the Jing that made the first move. Huan Chong, a general who was the younger brother of Xi'an's erstwhile political enemy Huan Wen, led 100,000 troops northward in May 383 in the middle portion of the Yangtze River in an attempt to tie up Qing troops so that they couldn't be sent to attack the lower reaches of the river where the capital was located. But attacking the Jing with everything he got was exactly what Fu Jian decided to do in any event just weeks later, in July 383. He drafted one out of every ten male civilians from his domain, on top of the professional army. Nominally, at least, the army Fu Jian put together and sent southward toward the Jing capital in August 383 numbered over 800,000 men, actually 600,000 infantry and perhaps 270,000 cavalry, according to some. The army that the Jing summoned to oppose them numbered only about one-tenth of that, or less, 70 or 80,000 men. And many of the frontline commanders were Xie clan members, including nephew Xie Xuan, who had fought so well a few years before, and Xie An's brother Xie Shi. In the capital, panic seized the Jing courtiers as well as citizens. Catastrophe and utter destruction seemed upon them. After all, their forces were outnumbered ten to one. Only Xi'an seemed not remotely afraid, even as the emperor named him commander-in-chief of all Jing forces. And the people of Jing hung their hopes on their leader's preternatural calm. In fact, right as the war was reaching its climax, Xi'an invited friends over to his house to play chess, or rather 
to play Go or Weiqi, the ancient Chinese game that is now incredibly popular in Japan. Meanwhile, on the front lines at Feishui, the river which is in today's province of Anhui, Xi'an's brother Xie Shi confronted the much superior enemy forces. But observing from the opposite bank that the Qing army was well led, its lines well formed, its troops well fed, Fu Jian grew worried. And as the Jing troops spread into the distance and blended in with the trees, Fu Jian mistook some of the trees for additional forces, so that the Jing army appeared even larger to him than it actually was. Maybe this fight wasn't going to be the walkover he expected. So he summoned Zhu Xu, the former Jing general who had defended Xiangyang a few years ago, but later had to surrender. He sent Zhu Xu as an envoy to Xie Shi to try to convince him to surrender. It was a bad mistake, because Zhu Xu was still loyal to the Jing. As soon as he arrived at the Jing camp, instead of trying to persuade Xie Shi to surrender, Zhu Xu betrayed every bit of intelligence he knew to the Jing officers. In particular, Zhu Xu advised Xie Shi that, although Fu Jian had summoned nearly a million men, most of these units had yet to arrive. Only the vanguard was present. If the Jing forces were to attack now, they would not be at as much of a numerical disadvantage as they had feared. And if they could defeat the vanguard then the psychological effect would resound through Fu Jian's army. So then, nephew Xie Xuan wrote a letter to the other side. It's a speedy battle that you want, isn't it? Xie Xuan asked in his letter. But right now we face each other across a river, each holding onto one bank. This is not the way to a speedy outcome. If you would move your forces back, by a certain distance, making space for us to land, we can ford the river, and then our two sides can fight it out. Fu Jian considered the proposal, and thought, well, I could agree to it, and then attack when they are halfway across the river, guaranteeing a victory for me. So he agreed to the proposal, and ordered his army to move back by some distance. What he hadn't considered, and this was the Jing stratagem, was that it's not so easy to get hundreds of thousands of people to walk backwards at the same time. As soon as his troops began to move backward, they fell into chaos. The lines broke up, the columns became disarranged, Moreover, now that they were moving backward, it wasn't so easy to order them to stop and to charge forward again. On the other bank, Xie Xuan seized the opportunity and led the Jing army across the river in a furious assault. Fu Jian's younger brother and general, Fu Rong, tried to get his troops to stop 
and stand their ground. But his horse fell, and he was trampled to death. The soldiers were already shaken upon seeing their general fall. Now Zhu Xu, the former Jing general, now in the rear of Fu Jian's army, started screaming, "We've been defeated! We've been defeated!" The soldiers panicked and ran. Only there were so many of them that they prevented each other from getting away. It was just the greatest traffic jam, and so. Ever more of them trampled each other to death. Fu Jian himself was wounded by an arrow, and barely got away with his life. And so the Battle of Feishui ended with resounding victory for the Jing, and the preservation of the regime for another generation. Meanwhile, over in the capital, Xi'an was still playing go. With his friend, a messenger rushed in, having freshly jumped off his horse, sweaty and dusty and panting, handing him an urgent message. Xian slowly opened it, glanced at it, then folded it back up and put it aside. Then he went back to playing go with his friend, his face inscrutable. After a few minutes, the friend couldn't take the suspense any more. Well, he asked Xian, "What does the message say?" "Oh, not much," Xian replied. "The boys have won the war. That is all." Only after the game was over and his friend had left, did Xian betray his emotion. He got up, and the book of the Qing tells us. As he walked through the house and stepped over a threshold, he accidentally exerted too much force as he stepped down, breaking the wooden slipper he was wearing. And so Xi'an's legendary Songhua entered Chinese history as the exemplar of how a leader should conduct himself in the face of mortal danger to the nation. And it rather reminds me of the way Tolstoy portrays Marshal Mikhail Kutuzov in his great novel *War and Peace*. According to Tolstoy, as Kutuzov faced off against Napoleon at the Battle of Borodino, he knew that the most important thing he could do as the commanding general was to perform calmness. To project the illusion of control, even if no such control was possible. So, with every message he got from a frontline officer, Kutuzov acted as though its content was exactly what he expected, and everything was going according to plan. And with that, the sense of self-possession trickled down throughout the ranks. And soldiers were able to follow their training and do their best, rather than to lose heart and to flee. Victory at Feishui was Xi'an's greatest achievement, and he and his family rose to the high point of their power. But it also attracted the emperor's envy, as he feared 
that the Xie clan might now be in a position to displace him. Meanwhile, Huan Chong, the brother of Xi'an's former enemy Huan Wen, died. Huan Chong by now so respected Xi'an that he entrusted him with his own family's fortunes, never mind that the Xie clan and the Huan clan had been rivals. And Xi'an didn't disappoint him. He gave a number of important posts to Huan family members when they could have gone to Xie family members, further winning over the Huan clan and maintaining peace among the great houses of the Qing. With the noble families cooperating with each other, Xi'an launched a northern campaign that successfully recovered large portions of the country. But these successes further attracted the concern and envy of the emperor and some other ministers. Keenly aware of this, Xi'an, like George Washington surrendering his sword to the Continental Congress, voluntarily gave up his power in the spring of 385. He assigned himself a provincial role and handed the reins of the central government to others. In so doing, Xi'an assuaged the emperor's doubts. And just in time as well, because only a few months later he fell ill and died, aged 65. By stepping back just in time, Xi'an had secured his own reputation for all time to come as a loyal minister who did not care for power in and of itself, did not care for his own glory. He became an object of emulation for public servants for the rest of Chinese history. And that image of Xi'an as the imperturbable happy warrior came to be taught to us even as schoolchildren. All right, on that note, this has been MODG. Thank you for listening.